Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Uh, hi, her, uh, we are here in the context of the International Conference of Education and Innovation in Monterrey. Uh, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, uh, two days ago, you delivered a great uh, conference here in, uh, in the uh, in, in our uh, event, and you were talking about children's aspirations and expectations. Uh, why is important uh, to understand children's aspirations and expectations? Uh, I think partly, you know, we, we talk a lot about education of the 21st century, and 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 and. We talk a lot about the new curriculum and technology and all those things. And I think we don't talk enough about the individual. And one of the consequences, I think, of, of developments educationally and in terms of society is that the individual matters more. So, so if we take um, schooling as it was, let's, let me use the United Kingdom as an example. In the Industrial Revolution and beyond that, school, the purpose of schooling in many ways was to fulfill the need of the world of work. So we need shipbuilders, we'll train, we'll school shipbuilders. We, whatever, whatever it is we need people to work in, 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 in the cotton mills, we'll do that too. Now we're entering a sphere of, of kind of individualism. That the mass approaches seem to be vanishing in the world of work in society in general and therefore in education too, I think. And so the question becomes, what's it for? Why do we go to school? Because we don't certainly in the UK, and I would suggest in many other countries, we don't go to school anymore for the mass production of workforces, but to enhance the chances and life chances and opportunities and well-being of the individual. So therefore, we need to focus more on individual children's aspirations. And I think our education system, our schooling system, particularly at secondary age, is set up um, through economies of scale with schools that are so big that actually we don't get the chance to get to know the individual. We know their children's academic potential. We know their attendance record. We know their grades. We know if they're like me, naughty, then, 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 then we know that they're naughty. But apart from that, for, certainly for 80% of them, they're still part of that mass. And, and so therefore to create a focus on the individual child, their aptitudes, their skills, their interests, their dreams, their aspirations is incredibly important. And then combined with that, you have that thing that every child lives in its own contextual bubble. So if I'm, if I'm a girl, then I'm expected to behave in certain ways. If I'm black or white, I'm expected to behave differently. If I come from a socioeconomically deprived background, then certain things don't seem to be accessible to me. So to get to know the children individually better and their circumstances better allows us as educationalists to help them fulfill their own potential more. That's it, I think. Some, some people will say that uh, young children, let's say a, a child of five years old, they're just, it's just a child and they're... Uh, it's not very important what their aspirations are. And I will give an extreme example of the beginning of the uh, 20th century. I think uh, Peter Mattison mentioned over dinner that they were uh, do an operation on a five-year-old without anesthesia because they thought that their 
uh, neurological system was not fully developed. Uh, and uh, so maybe it's an extreme belief of, uh, of, the, of the beginning of the 20th century, but uh, people still think, well, it's, it's just a child, it's not completely developed. Why is it important? I, I think, I think ent I entirely agree with this. But I think there are certain, as we know, there are certain things that surround us, our context, that influences us um, for the rest of our lives. So I would never ever, for example, in Kidzania terms, I would never ever advocate that we have conversations with young children about what they want to do with the rest of their lives. The conversation we should have with them is to find out what there is and what they're into. So, so it's about firing their curiosity And what we know from our research is that children who come from uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged areas, they have in their life a reduced menu of experiences. Because for, for whatever reasons, their parents might not take them to museums, libraries, galleries, restaurants, that kind of level of engagement. So in order to create a level playing field and to widen those children's horizons, We need to provide them with those experiences. So it's never about it's the five-year-old and we'll treat them like an adult. But it is about, that's my phone and I should have turned it off. But, but, but it, is about, um, it is about the five-year-old and widening their horizons and in a playful way, let them be curious. And be curious about what, because of their circumstances, because of their bubble, they might otherwise not be curious about. So, take a Kidzania context, children who come from a socioeconomically disadvantaged background very rarely choose the aeroplane, for example, as their first activity. They will choose the supermarket or making beds in a hotel or being a courier, and that's fine. However, we do, we do need to provide those kids with the opportunity, so maybe they need to come two or three times, whereby they they explore the whole of that Kidzania, and hopefully they're curious enough to then go home or to school and ask more questions. And I think that's what we're about. So the five-year-old, it's never about influencing to the detail, but it is about letting them, providing them with a free-range learning opportunity where they can make up their own minds. Particularly when we have schooling systems that become so narrow that they're really about teaching rather than what children learn and curiosity. I have this horrible example of when my son, uh, he was about eight years old, and um, do you remember that Icelandic volcano incident where yes. this thing went up and there were no aeroplanes and it made the news? And, and, and as an eight-year-old boy, I suppose I'm stereotyping here now, but he definitely was a fan of volcanoes and dinosaurs, right? So, so he runs into school that, that morning and, and he says to his teacher, Miss, 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 can we please talk about uh, volcanoes today. And the answer is, they're, they're on the curriculum in October. <laughs> yeah, and, and so it's about... A teacher moment lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's about that, really. And I think the other thing is, in, increasingly, we, we need to think about, and I said this at the conference, we need to stop asking children about what they want to be. We need to focus on who they want to be. Because this is an interesting thing as well, which exercises my mind a lot. Technology, as you and I know, technology is kind of speedily developed and everybody has told you and I for years that our lives would get easier because of all the technology. Right? And even we might even at some point work four days a week. 
Pepe, it doesn't feel like it, right? Because what technology does to me is that emails arrive at one o'clock in the morning or whatever. But, but I have the trust and the faith that at some point, the technology will help people have more time. So one of the things we need to think about with our children is about the who they want to be, as in, if you had a day, an extra day per week, how would you meaningfully use that? Surely not sit behind the screen for a whole day, but you might go and volunteer or you might go and whatever. So, so it's about that development that sits with that as well, I think. What difference have you find in, uh, in children of uh, different ages, uh, social backgrounds, or even countries? Well, I think, uh, I mean, Kizania is an interesting example to almost as a research garden, yeah? Uh, because essentially what it is, as, as, as you know, here in Mexico, it's a city for children where children can learn about the world of work. And, and from aeroplanes to operating theaters to television studios and theaters and sports grounds and couriers and supermarkets, you name it. And each container has about 60 jobs, YouTubers in Sao Paulo, right? And, um, and the kids can choose when they come in and they get, they, they get Kidzanian money and they can spend and they can earn and they can get interest in a bank account. So it's like a live economy in a live city. And typically, a child's engagement is about four hours. The age range is four to 14. And most importantly, when the children come inside, the adults, the accompanying adults, be they teachers or parents, are there to be seen and not heard, i.e., they can't interfere. So, so this playground is the children's, and this world is the children's. And then to observe them... Um, we can learn lots of lessons and we get to know the kids better and we pass that information through our analysis with Technomontre, through our analysis we pass that on to, to educationalists and people like OECD and whatever. But, but to go to your point, um, there are differences. Um, and what, what our research shows that they are perhaps not where we might expect them. So we've done research on what's children's first choices and then we looked at who the kids are, right? And we've done this in Mexico, in the UK, in Turkey, in India, and we're doing all the others. And what we're finding is that between the nations, the differences are, as the statisticians say, uh, statistically insignificant. So children are the same everywhere. Yes, and, and that's an interesting thing. And, and I think the answer to that is simple. I think it, there is something like a, um, a globalization of growing up. I had no idea in how many languages Beppa Pig exists, for example. And YouTube, of course, is a global phenomenon. Yeah. And at the same time, Kidzanias are in malls, in shopping malls. And sometimes when I travel a lot, I don't know which country I'm in. Because when I walk into the mall, be that mall in Kuala Lumpur, be that mall in Mexico City, or be that mall in Dubai, I see the same brands. I see the same shop layouts. Right? There's a Zara, an H&M, an Adidas, whatever it is shop, in all of them. And literally, you have to think, mm, where am I today? So, so you think of the impact of, the, of that imagery and that storytelling on children, and it's, maybe it's not a surprise that they're not that different. Right? Uh, but there are differences within that are very clearly pronounced. So, uh, And I think sometimes we as the educators or the, or the policymakers, thought that we were doing better than we are. So, so our research shows 
that all stereotypes are set at the age of four and probably before. And actually that they are as bad, if you wish, as they could be. So you, you take activities for four-year-olds, you go to the aeroplane, cabin crew pilot, 90% girls cabin crew, 90% boys pilot. And, and, and so it permeates throughout the city. And, and the interesting thing for me on that one is it's at the age of four. So this is before they go to school. This is before they've been taught anything. This is before they've been institutionalized educationally. So where does that come from? You know, that comes from the family, that comes from grandparents, but that also must come from their environment, from, from the Beppa Pig in whichever language and from the shopping mall they go to and from the images they see because they're still the pink and the blue. And, and then I- The I, films and- Yeah. And then I remember this incident in, in, in my hometown on a Sunday morning where I was just having a coffee on a sunny day and, and, I, and there was a climbing frame for little kids, you know, the kind of toddler climbing frame area. And there were lots of parents and lots of 18-month-old, two-year-olds. And, and I, I kind of what I saw was part, I think, part of the explanation because every time the, the little girl or a little girl goes near that climbing frame, all the adults go, careful, careful, don't hurt yourself. And all the time, every time the little boys go near the climbing frame, all the adults go, come on, come on, what's taking you so long? So, so, so all that kind of attitudinal stuff starts clearly very young. And then we're surprised that when these youngsters hit 14 or 16, that the gap between the genders is so wide, right? And then the other very clear gap is between... Um, wealth and not wealth, as in socioeconomic, sociocultural disadvantage. So, so kids from um, poorer areas make narrower choices. All children make choices relating to their background. So that means that children from the more deprived areas who have had fewer experiences will make narrower choices. Um, and I think that, that, and that happens in every country. So that happens in India, that happens in Mexico, that happens in Istanbul. And Istanbul was the latest analysis we did. And, and it was kind of stark how much Istanbul was like Mexico, like India, like the UK. No country does better. No. no. There, are, there are some variances, but we need to look into those more. So when we did the analysis in Mumbai, Included in that, the sample in Mumbai was 115,000 children. And included in that sample were a number of youngsters who came in from the slums. And so following what I've just been talking about, you would anticipate that those children would choose the lowest paying, most common, whatever you want to call it, professions. And they didn't. They didn't choose window cleaning, they didn't choose the supermarket, and they didn't choose being a courier. They chose the next layer up, which, which didn't make sense. We hadn't expected this. So we went and talked to the children and said, why did you make those choices, and why did you not make those choices? And the answer from quite young kids was quite interesting. Well, it was very interesting. And because the answer was, I live in the slums, so does the window cleaner. And so does the person who works in the supermarket. Why would I do a job that keeps me where I don't want to be? So, so there was 
with those youngsters, but uniquely so far only with those youngsters, there's an element of almost self-built-in aspirations that say, well, I, 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 need, to, I need to go... To improve their lives or yeah. somehow. Yeah. Very interesting. So in, in the, two, the two cases that you are showing uh, here, children at four years old are already either programmed by uh, our own prejudice of uh, social prejudice yeah. of what uh, boys and girls yeah. should do. And that would be one, one example. It is invariably uh, the same uh, in different uh, economical uh, socioeconomical uh, levels. And the other one is more uh, postal code. So if you're born in a certain postal yeah. code, almost at year, uh, at the year of four, a uh, fuller year, you are, uh, I would say, maybe exaggerate, but condemned to uh, stay in the same uh, yes. level of aspiration yeah, than yeah. Uh, uh, to be in that uh, area. Absolutely, and, and there was a third one. And the third one, as a, as a father of two girls, was... Uh, Took, took me back. And this also is globally, and this one is regardless of socioeconomic background. And it's the following, that, um, that almost all girls choose activities below the age range. So eight-year-old girls do six-year-old activities. Two years less. Yeah. Eight-year-old boys do nine-year-old boys' activities. And that must have to do, reflecting back to my experience in, in the playground. The playground. Oh, It must be connected to how we and society as a whole behaves, the language we use, the imagery we, we present those, those children and young people with, because that is quite significant, isn't it? And, and my view, it's always been my view, about this kind of data is the more we can share that data with educators, the more chance they have to make a difference. So if I know this as a teacher, and I have a class of 20 children, 10 boys, 10 girls, I might just plan certain activities slightly differently because I know that there is a level of underconfidence in those girls. And actually, I also know that there is a level of overconfidence in some of those boys. Um, but, but you're right. And I think the other thing that strikes me is, and we were talking at the conference, weren't we, about this? Those children, my, my wife is a, is a principal of a school uh, in, in, in England, or, uh, of a number of schools, but one of those schools is in what is statistically seen as, as a very deprived area. And, um, and, you, and the, the school does exceptionally well. So the school gets some of those children to get scholarships to private schools because they, they've done so well. Academically, they've done so well. And, and they're now going to university, where she's now at the point as the principal where she sees her first cohort of children going through university. And we talk about this a lot. Uh, those children are still from a deprived background, even when they go to university. And our, and our education system still needs to provide additional support. Even when they're 20 and they've passed the entrance tests or whatever, they come from a background that is socioeconomically deprived, that often has parents who are not that well-educated themselves. There's evidence that there are very few books at home. There's evidence that when those children start school that they have a limited vocabulary, that they have limited life experiences. And, and in many ways, in some of those aspects, they will always be slightly behind their peers as they grow up. 
And it becomes our responsibility, going back to your very first point, to keep knowing our individual children, students, and to keep providing support where it's needed, be that through mentors, or be that through additional tuition, or be that through additional activities. We have to keep supporting that until they come out of their cocoon and, and the butterfly can fly. But I think that's much later on, because I think confidence, for example, is something that takes a long time to build up in all sorts of circumstances. But when I, when I hear this, I, um, it, it seems like an impossible problem because it's, it's like cha trying to change all the society. Uh, it's like a, teaching the parents and, and, uh, and we as people, normally we, we don't realize that we are having those prejudices uh, when, when we are uh, talking to a children or uh, taking care of them in a playground. Uh, but uh, where's, where, where's the key to change that? Do think, you think it's the school system or...? No, no, no. I think, I think we, we, we must not make the schools responsible for everything. There's a, there's a very... Uh, it seems to be a global phenomenon, right? Schools, schools have now been seen politically, at least, as the solution to all of society's ills. Right? If I reflect that on the United Kingdom, um, sex education is the school's job. Uh, uh, drug education, it's the school's job. Uh, knife crime, the school will deal with it. W where are the other components of society that are meant to be the role models and lead by example? I, I love the, the, the school that my wife's principal of because, because it's the school that functions against the odds. And it also shows what's possible. And I don't just mean about the academic, right? So I walk into that school and every child will say good morning. And when I walk down the corridor, the children will hold the door open for me. They will ask me, who, if I say, how are you this morning? Their reply will be, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? That wasn't taught in a classroom. That was modeled by the other adults around them. And I think one of the things that our research shows is that, it's my question, particularly around the four-year-olds, before they go to school, well, who is the teacher? Who is responsible for where they are? The family. We all are, aren't we? And the minute we realize that, the minute we know that we are role models, all of us, then we should stop throwing rubbish out the car windows, Yeah, it, it, it permeates through life. We should stop sitting behind screens all the time. We should put them away and have conversations. Very simple things that move those things on. It isn't all about teaching. And it is about the awareness. If you, and I'm absolutely certain that at the university of your standing, if Techno Monterey knows that it has a number of student, students who, who originate from a socially deprived backgrounds, you know who they are you can easily put them in touch with other students who will look after them and put together a mentoring program because it's what you do well. If we teach to the masses, going back to the early point, then we don't know our individual people and we can't do anything about it. And in the end, I think we will, we will harvest tremendous success if we do that because it is about the individual and looking after them. And it's, it's a very simple example, which I think is very understandable. So I, I see a lot about scholarships, and we were talking about it the other night, weren't we? Uh, so what, what particularly independent schools, private schools do, is they give a scholarship. And that, what that means is they will pay the fee or they will waive the fee for, for the schooling. Right? But put yourself in the child's shoes. 
They still need a uniform in many schools. They still can't afford to go on all the trips. Mm -hmm. they, can't, they still can't quite be like all the others. So my, my suggestion... Even dress the same. Yes. So, so my suggestion to a number of independent schools has been give fewer scholarships, but give better ones. Yeah, so that the child doesn't feel, I can't go skiing, or I can't go to the theater, or I can't go this or that. If you give one, do it for the whole child rather than just the academic. So they have the full experience yes. of the others that are in a different Otherwise, they will always feel, otherwise what you're, buy, what you're buying them is a ticket to feeling inferior. And I don't think that's very fair. And I think fairness is a really important word in education and in schooling. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you treat everybody equal. You still have standards and you still have expectations. And I don't care what background you come from. If you are antisocial, disrespectful, always late, you have a problem and we need to solve that problem. So, so there, it doesn't mean that you don't have standards. But I do think if we expect to, to serve the individual, then we need to do better. Is there a way for um, me to test myself or evaluate myself and understand where are my weaknesses as an adult? You, you mean to, to where your weaknesses yeah, are? Yes, in, in, the, uh, in, in treating um, you know, gender difference, children, uh, etc., expectations. Is there a way? I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, hearing you and I say, well, I... I surely maybe have done the same that these parents does with I the... Do. I, I do it. Yes, I but, do. but maybe I'm not aware. Is, is there a way of uh, evaluating myself uh, somehow? Uh, and Because they say if you don't evaluate something, you cannot change yeah. it. No, it's, uh, So is there a way that I, can self-test myself or whatever? I think, I think firstly, awareness and knowledge become a baseline for testing yourself. Because within that awareness and knowledge, you then set your own standards as to what you want to be, right? Now, I'll give you an example. I have a 24-year-old, a 22-year-old, and a 14-year-old. When my 24-year-old daughter, and everybody sang happy birthday to her so beautifully at the conference, when my 24-year-old daughter rings me, and she lives in London, and says, Dad, I'm going out with my friends tonight, my reaction is, darling, be careful. You just be careful and text me when you get back. Yes, Dad. When my 22-year-old boy rings up and says that I'm going out with my friends tonight, my reaction will be, don't do anything I wouldn't do and have a great time. Right? Although, interestingly, that's changing because, the, because the, most of the victims of knife crime in London are 20 to 25-year-old men. So, so my tone with my son, considering the circumstances, has changed, and I'm kind of going, be careful and text me when you're home. Um, so, so I think we all do it. But the difference is I'm now aware that I'm doing it. Yeah? And I think, so I don't think it's a complicated process. It's a process of honesty and reflection. And I'll give a very simple example. A good, a good friend of mine, um, Bill McFarlane, who's a, a, a television presenter in the UK. And Bill wrote a book called Drop the Pink Elephant. And I urge everybody who works with children to buy the book and read it because it's about language. And it's about... Uh, the language that we unknowingly confront our students and our children with. So when you do a tour of a school and you look at all the signs in the school, it tells you everything you can't do. Don't talk. Don't walk on the left. Don't run. Da. 
negative, right? So Bill says, change the wording, put walk. Yeah, and please be silent or whatever. Positive as the language. Ever since I've read that book, every email I write, I go back over and I take out the no's and the can'ts and the don'ts. And in a sense, that is your reflection. And, and no, we will never get it right. But the fact that you might have dinner over the weekend and you talk to your friends about it. We, it's about empowerment. It's about us also, schools, turning to parents and saying, you're part of this. We may have, you may feel that we've excluded you of this process, but you're part of this. We can't, we can school your children without you, but we can't educate them without you. Yeah, so that's a difference. Yeah, so, so so you need to take an interest when they come home, and f help and co-educate them at home. Ask them what their homework is. Ask them what was difficult. Yeah, and maybe schools. I've, I've said this to some elementary schools. Once a week, you should set a family homework. Yeah, and the homework can only be completed if the whole family takes part. That might just be watching a David Attenborough program for half an hour or whatever, right? On plastics and and the harm that does. But I think schools have also, have, are also guilty of this divide in that they've gone, well, we actually, we don't like parents coming in very much. We build a fence around the school or whatever it is, right? And, and I think we need to open those fences because, because as my wife's motto, the, the motto in my wife's school is, every child is everyone's responsibility. And I think that that's right. Yeah, it isn't just that's the school's job and that's the parent's job. And we need to reflect. The parent in Moscow who said to me, the father in Moscow, who said to me, my children, they're always in their room watching their telly, uh, television, or they're on their, on their phones on the screen. They don't communicate with me at all. So I said to him, I said, who, who bought the television? And, and who put the television in the room? And do you sometimes knock on the door and say, can I come and watch with you? So stop blaming the technology and other things. Reflect on your own behavior and think, actually. And, and, and I think that people are busy. I get it. People are working. They're busy. They get tired. But I think people need to spend more time with their kids meaningfully. And schools need to encourage that. Yes, you're right. We're talking less and less. And just uh, sometimes we're in um, uh, the same place and we're texting each other. And, yeah. Uh, work. It's, you, I, you know, you go, go to a restaurant. I don't know whether it's the same in Mexico. Go to a restaurant, a family restaurant, and watch. And you see a table of four people, and they're all on their phone. And I'm thinking, you might as well have stayed at home, really, or gone out individually. I don't, know, I don't know why you're doing this. They're not even on the phone going, look, this is really funny, and then sharing the information like a story. Mm -hmm. Presumably, everybody's on their own little bit of Twitter, I don't know, and I know how it works. But, but, but that kind of thing we need to, we need, I, I think in terms of the technology, uh, technology is great, but I think we, we are not prepared to cope with it properly yet. We haven't defined our behaviors around it. You know, I, I, would, I want to open a restaurant where mobile phones are not permitted, for example, it would be quite cool. <laughs> Keep uh, your cell phones in the basket. Now yeah, there are some restaurants yeah, yeah. or uh, yeah, yeah. meetings that are put your cell phone in yeah, the basket. Yeah. So I, we are arriving at the end of the podcast, and I want to ask you a question. What will be your um, image of the world in ten in ten years in terms of 
children's aspiration? What will be your uh, expectations, your aspirations for children's aspiration in 10 years? Either what you think is realistic or your ideal. I think there are, I was, I was asked once uh, by somebody, how will you know that Kidzania has worked? And I'll, I'll start with that. And, um, and I think, again, the answer, it, clearly it needs to be measurable. But not. But they need to be our own measurements, not somebody else's. And uh, and at the moment, wherever in the world I am, if I show an adult around Kidzania, except except for Mexico, every other country I go, I show adults around Kidzania. They will say, "I wish this had been around when I was a child." Right. And and I found my the answer to your question in Mexico last year here in Monterey, at Inc. Monterey at the conference. Because I had a big audience and I asked people who's been to Kidzania and they all put their hands up. And because Kidzania was born in yeah, Mexico. Yeah. And they're the people who say to me, I'm really glad that Kidzania was around when I was a child because it's widened my aspirations. So, so I think there is, there is that evidence. And the teacher who fairly recently came to see me in, uh, in Cuicuilco and who said to me, let me show you this photograph. This is a photograph of my boy when he was eight years old in a pilot uniform. I said, that's a very nice photograph. She said, wait, this is my boy, 28, and he's a pilot with Interjet, right? And he, so, so I, think, I think there is that kind of evidence, have we made a difference as Kidzania? In terms of children's aspirations individually. Um, or the society, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I want to go, I, I want to go into schools in 10 years time, as I do now. I want to go into schools and I want to ask children Why do you go to school? And I want to get a better answer than because I have to. And, and if that happens, then we know something that we've done, that you've done, that tech has done, that we've done, because this is not about one organization, one person. This is a huge jigsaw. But if we start talking the, the same language and, and in, in, uh, in Bill McFarlane's sense, not uh, drop the pink elephant, and we do it with the parents, then we know that we've succeeded. We won't win them all. Uh, but we can win many more than we're winning at the moment. And, uh, and you know, and, and I, I say this absolutely, uh, uh, I said it on social media, I think if children get a chance to come to universities like yours, and, and we were talking the other night about the programs around philanthropy and how that would support children to come who normally might not be able to, to come with support networks, then we have a chance. Yeah, because I think what I see at a university like Tech de Monterey, as I see tomorrow. When I go to many of the established universities, I see yesterday. And I'm not that interested in yesterday. I'm much more interested in tomorrow. And I think that's what you do. And that's what, what your president does. And that's what you do. And that's what all the colleagues I know. And that's what the campus tells you when you walk around. It, and that's what your students say. And that's the biggest compliment I can pay you. I think you are on the way. Uh, and, and your students are remarkable young people because you are a remarkable university. So congratulations, Pepe, on that. Thank you very much, uh, Karen. This is, uh, and I say that this uh, path of changing education is more like a marathon than uh, 100 meters. Yeah. And, uh, and if we walk this together, we can, we can get far, far away. I think, I think that's what I meant when I said we, we must measure, we must live by our own measures. I'm tired of government's five-year targets. Right? So a child in, in, in most countries could have three governments in, the, in, the, in their time of compulsory education. Right? Governments need to get real that, that true change, sustainable change, 
doesn't happen in the five times that you're in charge. Right? You can make a significant contribution, but don't play the target game and the short-termism. You're quite right. This, it is a marathon. That doesn't mean that we can't measure it, because in a marathon, sure. you, you, know, you measure the halfway point. Exactly. Right? exactly. Well, Curtis, uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks a lot for your generosity. No, my pleasure. Always my pleasure to be here, Pepe, as you know. Thank you. Thank you. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast. Thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producer, Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post-production, Max Perez. Stay tuned for the next episode of Edutrends and visit Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.